This is the Ancazine Brief with Peter Hofflin and Sonia Portillo. In this edition of the Ancazine Brief, we talk with Dr. Joseph M. Connors, clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia and the chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency. Dr. Connors is also the lead investigator of the Echelon 1 clinical trial, a trial focusing on new treatment options for Hodgkin lymphoma. I'm Peter Hofland, here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Ongutin Brief. In our interview with Dr. Connors, we talk about some of the latest results from the Echelon 1 trial, which tests an antibody drug conjugate called Brintuximab vedotin as a frontline treatment option for patients with advanced classical Hodgkin lymphoma. Dr. Connors tells us about this study, how it was conducted, and why it is important for this patient group and for cancer research as a whole. Let's listen. Dr. Connors, welcome to the Oncogene Brief. Thank you for having me. I'm delighted to be here. You are a clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia and chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency. You are also the lead investigator of the Echelon 1 clinical trial, a trial focusing on new treatment options for Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, before we're going to talk about uh, the trial, um, tell me a little bit about your institution. I work for the institution called the BC Cancer. So here in Canada, uh, cancer care is organized by province. And in the province of British Columbia, the organization called BC Cancer is responsible for supervising the delivery of cancer treatment across the entire province. There are about 4 million people in British Columbia, and my institution is responsible for supervising their cancer care. We do this through six regional centers scattered across the province where the population is distributed. And at each of those centers, we have radiation, chemotherapy, all of the trappings uh, to make the diagnosis of cancer and deliver the treatment that patients need. So it's a large, essentially group practice distributed across six centers. And on top of that, we also conduct a, con- a considerable amount of research into different kinds of cancer, trying to understand their biology better and craft better treatments. Right. Um, now, when you look at uh, your center and lymphoma and the treatment of lymphoma, um, that's a specialty of you. How does that work in the, in the, in the clinic, in the institution? W- within the agency that I work for, We focus uh, on what we call tumor groups, and so my focus is on the lymphoid cancers, which include the lymphomas or the lymphocytic leukemias, multiple myeloma, all the cancers that can develop from lymphocytes. And I work together with a group of chemotherapists, diagnosticians, pathologists, radiation oncologists, nurses, pharmacists as a team to craft the lymphoma treatment that we intend to deliver to patients across the entire province of British Columbia. We also participate in clinical trials and conduct a variety of translational research projects focused on these diseases. Right. Now, let's shift gears a little bit and talk a little bit about lymphoma uh, in general. I mean, um, Mm -hmm. there is a difference between Hodgkin lymphoma and non-Hodgkin lymphoma. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Because that's part of the trial, which we're going to talk a little bit further on in the program. 
Sure. Uh, each of us circulating within our body, ha we have white blood cells. Some of those white blood cells are called lymphocytes. And simply put, those are the cells that man our immune system. They're the cells that help us to resist uh, disease getting into our body from organisms coming from the outside. These lymphocytes circulate in our blood, move throughout all the tissues of our body, and protect us from infections. When one of those lymphocytes becomes malignant and stops behaving the way it's supposed to and starts to grow into a clone of malignant cells and spreads throughout the body, a person has lymphoma or leukemia. Now, pathologists looking through the microscope at biopsies taken from a person who has one of the lymphomas can classify the type of lymphoma into about 35 different varieties of lymphoma today. Most of those are referred to as non-Hodgkin lymphomas because a small subset of them were named after an investigator from the 1830s, Thomas Hodgkin. And so his name has been put on a specific small set of the, of the lymphomas, and those are referred to as Hodgkin lymphoma. All the other lymphomas, all the other lymphoma-type cancers that are derived from lymphocytes are lumped together and called non-Hodgkin lymphoma. So they're best thought of as just varieties of the disease we refer to as lymphoma. What's special about Hodgkin lymphoma is that for some time now, we've been routinely able to cure many of the patients with this disease, even when the disease has spread widely throughout their body. So we have programs of chemotherapy and radiation treatments that we combine trying to optimize the likelihood of curing the disease while holding to a minimum the toxicity and side effects of the treatment. Hodgkin lymphoma has been a success story for the past 50 years as we've accomplished this. We've moved to the point where the majority of patients with Hodgkin lymphoma are cured with the best treatments that we have today, but not all of them are. And so we're constantly involved in studies to try to improve the cure rate for these patients without adding unnecessarily to the burden of the toxicity that patients experience. So if you are talking about standard care, care uh, treatment options that are for Hodgkin lymphoma, um, mm -hmm. but the, what is the standard of care? And if you look at the standard of care, uh, you mentioned that there, the majority of people can be cured or uh, in remission for a long time. Um, what is the unmet medical need in that case? Well, the first challenge is that because the disease, Hodgkin lymphoma, develops in lymphocytes, which can freely move around a person's body, we have to view this as a systemic problem. And so today, all patients with Hodgkin lymphoma are, in, at least in part, treated with chemotherapy. This is the delivery of multiple drugs that we put into a person's body to injure and we hope get rid of the Hodgkin lymphoma cells while staying within the tolerance of the normal cells in their body. Sometimes the disease is apparently relatively localized, and so we use brief chemotherapy and local radiotherapy. The majority of patients, something around 60% of the patients, have more widespread disease, and then we rely more heavily on chemotherapy as the method of treatment. We refer to those different situations as limited stage or advanced stage, and 
the focus uh, of much of the research I've been involved in is the treatment of advanced stage disease. So this is disease spread enough throughout the person's body that we have to use medications, what people often refer to as chemotherapy, to treat the disease in the person's entire body. A series of infusions of the chemotherapy are typically given over about six months of time. And with the best combinations of chemotherapy that we've had until recently, we would anticipate curing approximately three quarters of the patients, depending upon how much disease they came to us with. So we're trying to improve from that baseline. We're already perhaps curing about three quarters of patients. We're trying to do a better job for those patients that aren't being cured with the previously best described regimens. Now we're going to take a short break, after which we'll be back with Dr. Joseph M. Connors. If you're just joining us, Dr. Connors is a clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia, and the chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency. He's also the lead investigator for the Echelon 1 clinical trial, a trial focusing on new treatment options for Hodgkin lymphoma. We'll be right back with Oncazine Brief. And welcome back. This is the Oncazine Brief, and if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Joseph M. Connors. Dr. Connors is a clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia, and he is also the chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency, clinical director for the Center of Lymphoid Cancer. He is also the lead investigator of the Echelon 1 clinical trial, a trial focusing on a new treatment option for Hodgkin's lymphoma. Dr. Connors, you've been involved with a clinical trial of a drug called Brentuximab vedotin, and this is an antibody drug conjugate. Before we get into talking about that clinical trial, can you tell us a bit about antibody drug conjugates, or ADCs, and what makes these novel targeted drugs so unique? Well, they, this is a special class of drugs, and I'm delighted it's proven to be helpful for Hodgkin lymphoma. So we have to start with the malignant cell in Hodgkin lymphoma, as with all cells, it has characteristics on its surface, chemical structures that are on the surface. Some of them are unique to the malignant cell. Antibodies are large, complex molecules that naturally our body makes as a way of resisting virus infections. We make these large antibodies against measles or mumps or polio, and we block that disease from happening in our body because the antibodies bind to the germ and kill it. We can, uh, scientists can work in the laboratory and craft or build antibodies that have specificity that are targeted at some of the unique structures on the surface of cells. So we, we drill down to Hodgkin lymphoma. They have a structure on their surface that is scientifically referred to as CD30, it's a chemical structure that we can aim an antibody at. That antibody will stick to that surface structure and glue the antibody to the surface of the cell. By, we can take advantage of that by adding something to the antibody. That's the drug in the antibody drug conjugate. So each molecule of, of brentuximab vedotin is an, a large antibody and four copies of a special substance called monomethyl E. 
it's a long name, but it's important to understand what it does is it disrupts the internal structure of cells. So we put the antibody drug conjugate into the person's body. It sticks to the CD30 on the surface of the Hodgkin lymphoma malignant cells. The cells pull it into their internal structure. They digest away the antibody and they free up the monomethyl orostatin E. It then thoroughly disrupts the function of the cell, essentially killing it. And so that cell is now destroyed because of the delivery of the antibody drug conjugate. So uh, this is a way of delivering what we call targeted therapy. The concept here is that we would like to aim our therapeutic agent specifically at the cells that we're trying to get rid of and not have it go elsewhere in the body or cause any off-target effects on other cells in the body because we're taking advantage of an antibody which is highly specific and will only bind to the CD30 that is nearly uniquely expressed on the surface of the Hodgkin cells, we can aim the antibody drug conjugate, brentuximab vidotin, specifically at the malignant cells and anticipate that this will have very little effect on the other cells in the body. Very different from much of the chemotherapy we use otherwise, which has a lot of nonspecific effects off-target on the normal cells of the body. So what we can hope to do is to narrowly confine the effect of the agent, the antibody drug conjugate, to the cells we're trying to rid the body of and avoid off-target effects elsewhere in the body. That's what brentuximabidotin accomplishes for us. Now, Dr. Connors, I mean, before the break, we were talking a little bit about uh, lymphoma, about your institution, about uh, and about uh, antibody drug conjugates as a new targeted therapies for Hodgkin lymphoma. Um, but let's talk a little bit further about the uh, Echelon 1 trial. The Echelon 1 trial is an open-label, randomized, two-arm, multicenter phase 3 study with a primary objective of comparing the modified progression-free survival as a result uh, of treatment with brentuximabidotin plus then the treatment of what they call AVD, which is a combination of chemotherapies, including doxorubicin, uh, which is also known as adromycin, finblastine, docarbazine, um, combined with another combination uh, of ABVD, which then includes also uh, bleomycin. Now, before we're going to talk a little bit about this trial and, and the impact it has, um, our listeners probably sometimes have questions about the terminology that we use. Uh, we talk about open-label trial, randomized trials, two-arm trials, multicenter trials, phase three studies. Can you shed a little bit of light about that? Sure. So in order to uh, determine if a new treatment is better than a previous treatment, we have to carefully compare giving the new treatment to some patients and the old treatment to some other patients. And we want to make sure that the two groups of patients are very similar so that anything that emerges as a difference is entirely due to the different treatment that we used. So an open label trial simply means that everybody knows what's being done. The doctors know what they're administering, the patients know what they're receiving, and so uh, everyone understands they're either receiving ABVD, the four-drug standard chemotherapy, or half of the patients are receiving AVD, three of those drugs without the bleomycin, but with the addition of the brentuximab vidotin. 
Now, it's important to understand that in an open-label trial, everybody knows what's going on. And so we have to protect against people making choices that would actually affect the outcome of the trial. To do that, we randomly assign people a flip of the coin. We send half of the patients to one arm of the trial and half of the patients to the standard arm of the trial. That allows us to be reassured that we didn't predetermine the outcome by picking and choosing who we gave which treatment to. Two-arm trial just refers to the simple structure. There's one arm that's experimental and one arm that is the standard treatment called the control arm. Multi-center trials are done at different centers around the world. And it's important to understand that Echelon 1 was done in 20 different countries at more than 200 different medical centers so that we could enroll more than 1,300 patients in this trial to get a robust answer so that at the end of the trial, we knew that a large number of patients had been given the standard treatment and the other half of the patients had been given the experimental treatment that the two groups of patients are very, very similar, and therefore any difference that emerges must be due to the change in the type of the chemotherapy. Phase three is referring simply to the point in time when we make that type of comparison. Earlier phase trials determine the best dose, the usual effect, and give us an idea of what might work, but a phase three trial is where you put it to the final acid test and you say, We've done this sufficiently carefully that the effect is due to the difference in the treatment and nothing else. And therefore, we can conclude, if it's a positive trial as it was, that the experimental arm has brought about a better result than we might have seen with the, or that we did see with the standard arm. So when you talk about the clinical trial, in this case, you said it about randomization. Um, that really means that you really can't pick and choose. Um, well, this patient may have a better result than this pa than that patient. Um, so it is a legitimate I mean, fair trial in that respect. Yeah, th this is obviously necessary because if we did the trial and we said the doctors or the patients could choose, then it might turn out that all the sick patients went on one arm of the trial and all the much less ill patients went on the other arm of the trial. And any difference that we saw would be between because the patient populations are different, not because of the treatment. The randomization eliminates that risk and assures us that we didn't pick and choose and therefore the outcome difference has to be due to the difference in the intervention. Now, we have to, so I'm sorry we have to interrupt you, but we have to kind of take a break right now, um, and we'll be, we'll be right back. Um, if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Joseph Connors, and uh, he is clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia, and a chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency. He is also the lead investigator in the Echelon 1 trial, a trial focusing on new treatment options for Hodgkin lymphoma. And we'll be right back. I'm Peter Hofland here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncocene Brief. And welcome back. This is the Oncocene Brief, 
And if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Joseph Connors. Dr. Connors is clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia, and a chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency. Um, he is also the lead investigator of the Echelon 1 trial, a trial focusing on new treatment options for Hodgkin lymphoma. Now, going back to the uh, Echelon 1 trial, um, it's a large trial. Um, can you tell me a little bit about the goals that you had with the trial? What we set out to do was to demonstrate that, at least that it was possible, that the experimental treatment would control the disease better, make it more likely that the disease had probably been cured, and also track the impact, the effects of the delivery of the experimental treatment so that we understood exactly what kinds of toxicity or side effects might result. So we, as I said, we did this in 21 countries, 218 different clinical sites, more than 1,300 patients, and um, did it in such a way with rigorous controls on each of the steps so that we would be confident that the difference that we see was due to the experimental intervention. That also meant that we had to define what constituted success. So what we settled upon was called the modified progression-free survival. Uh, it's a complicated term, but it refers to a very simple concept. That is, how often after giving this treatment did we get a finding that indicated the person's lymphoma was probably gone and would stay away forever. So we compared the number of times that the disease did come back despite the treatment on each of the two arms. And that results in the characterization that we've called a modified progression-free survival. But the simple concept is, what did we see in the way of the behavior of the disease after the treatment to indicate to us that it was either gone and likely to stay away forever, or it came back and gave us the indication that the treatment that that person had received had failed to uh, cure their disease. That's what uh, was involved in the study, and it was very important that we did this to the satisfaction of regulatory agencies in Europe and in North America with a whole collection of predefined rules that we had to behave according to to make the study results interpretable. I see. Now, you mentioned uh, this modified progression-free survival, or MPFS. What's the difference between MPFS and progression-free survival, or PFS? Well, one of the challenges in this is exactly defining what constitutes success or not. So it's rather straightforward. If we give a treatment to the person, their disease goes away, and then it comes back again. That's a progression of the disease, and it makes evident that the treatment didn't work. Unfortunately, sometimes, uh, despite our best efforts, with the intervention, people wind up dying either from their disease or from a complication of the treatment, and that's an obvious lack of success, the death. But there's an intermediate finding, and that is a person who gets better, the tumor shrinks, the disease partially goes away, but some of it is still there despite the primary treatment. So we defined a very clear-cut set of rules to say, if the person had clear-cut evidence of persistence of the lymphoma and 
the doctors taking care of the patient were sufficiently convinced of that that they stepped in and gave a different treatment, another treatment beside the one that the patient was initially assigned to, that would also be defined as a failure of the primary therapy. So progression didn't occur. The person didn't get worse. They just stayed ill from the, from the lymphoma. They hadn't died, so we hadn't met either the progression or death criteria, but we did have a carefully defined other state of failure, and that was the modified progression-free survival. So we had three ways of defining that the treatment didn't work, and that's what we compared between the two arms of the trial. Now, Dr. Connors, there's some controversy about modified progression-free survival. Can you tell us a bit about that and how that influenced the trial and maybe the trial results? Well, I think what concerns those that look at the terminology is that we somehow or other modified the definitions in such a way as to favor the outcome we wanted to see, but we actually carefully avoided that. Um, in fact, um, we did this, I think, in a way that was more careful and with better definition than often has been used in similar trials in the past. And so we defined each of the three conditions that I was describing. And we said, we will judge the treatment to which the person was assigned to have been a failure if the disease grows or progresses despite the treatment, mm -hmm. or if the person dies, obviously a lack of success, or if at the end of treatment with the assigned treatment, there's clear-cut evidence that the disease has persisted despite that intervention. And we defined that as a two-step process. We said there would not only be an abnormal test, in this case, a specific kind of scan called the PET scan, but the evidence was sufficiently convincing that the doctors managing that patient stepped in and gave more treatment, which they wouldn't do unless they actually were strongly convinced that the disease was persisting. And by asking for those two conditions to be met, we assured ourselves that we weren't falsely counting as successes ones that really weren't successes. We weren't biasing the result by how these things are interpreted. And I think um, we learned from the way in which this trial was done and described that there's a real need internationally for better definition of the uh, characteristics of success in a trial like this. And there's been agreement that this should be rediscussed at an upcoming international meeting focused on Hodgkin lymphoma, and will be part of a workshop that will focus on this and arrive at the best way to characterize the success or failure of primary treatment. I think we'll move the field forward in that way, but Echelon 1 gave us a lot of very useful information about that. Now, another um, one of the objectives of the Echelon 1 trial is overall survival, the overall survival rate. Um, for our listeners, can you tell us a little bit what that means and how do these results show in the trial? Well, the concept is straightforward. Uh, overall survival means staying alive. So in that sense, the only outcome that's judged to be a failure is if the patient dies all the patients that stay alive are judged to be a success. The challenge in interpreting matters with regard to Hodgkin lymphoma is that we do get a clear-cut second chance at curing the disease. By that, what I mean is consider a person who gets the standard usual treatments, say ABVD or something similar to it, go through all their treatment, 
the disease appears to be gone, time goes by, and the disease comes back. We can step in at that point and treat the person with a marked increase in the dosing of the chemotherapy. We ramp up the doses to very high levels and help them to successfully get through that treatment with what's referred to as a autologous stem cell transplant or a bone marrow transplant. And that sometimes works. So now you have to think, what we'll see when we look at overall survival is the impact of both the primary treatment and that secondary treatment. And since that secondary treatment can rescue people from failure of the primary treatment, when we're comparing the overall survivals, we're actually comparing the two strategies. That is the primary treatment plus the impact of the high-dose treatment and autologous stem cell transplant. Now, we so, have to, uh, so, I'm sorry I have to ahead. interrupt you, but we have to kind of take a break right now. Um, sure. And we'll, be, we'll be right back. Um, if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Joseph Connors, and uh, he is clinical professor in the Department of Medicine, Division of Medical Oncology at the University of British Columbia and a chair of the Lymphoma Tumor Group for the British Columbia Cancer Agency. He is also the lead investigator in the Echelon 1 trial, a trial focusing on new treatment options for Hodgkin lymphoma, and we'll be right back. I'm Peter Hofland here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncocene Brief. Welcome back. Now, before the trial, Dr. Connors, we were talking about overall survival um, and how does this impact the trial, the Echelon 1 trial, and you were telling us a little bit about the differences in um, the impact. Yeah, so what I was describing was the fact that overall survival will always reflect the impact of all the separate times of treatment that a person has been had an intervention. It will reflect their primary treatment and also any treatment that's given because the primary treatment failed. So our goal here is more than just having people survive. That's obviously the thing we most desire, but we want to have them survive with the least amount of treatment overall. Why would we want that? Well, because some of these treatments are very harsh, even dangerous. High-dose chemotherapy and a stem cell transplant is something one has to get in the hospital. A patient often becomes quite ill. Some patients die. And if we can avoid that by using a more effective primary therapy, then we'll have gained something. We won't see the true impact of the primary therapy by itself reflected in the overall survival because the overall survival will reflect both the primary treatment and the secondary treatment. So it's important in a trial like this to compare the in, uh, what's accomplished by the primary treatment, that's how we measured it with the modified progression-free survival, and the overall survival. So we keep track of both. Now we'll be delighted with the passage of time 
if it turns out that the overall survival is better in the people that were initially assigned to the experimental arm. But that's not the sole thing we're aiming at. We're aiming at not only having people stay alive, the very desirable goal, but do so with the least amount of overall treatment, so they have the least amount of total toxicity. And that's where the gain comes in here, because if you get a better outcome of the primary therapy, more people avoid the secondary treatment with all of its toxicities and dangers and expense. So that's why the primary outcome of most importance in a trial like this is the first result, the result of the primary therapy, the one we've been evaluating with the modified progression-free survival. Now, if you uh, look at clinical trials in general, one of the things that uh, somebody may notice is so-called inclusion and exclusion criteria. Um, mm -hmm. Why are they important uh, for the success of a trial? Before we go on to talk about uh, the Echelon 1 trial in this case, why are they in generally important to be considered? This goes back to the heart of the necessity to make sure that the outcome is due to the intervention and not something else. So, for instance, if in the course of doing the trial, we included people who also were ill with some other illness, perhaps they have severe heart disease or something else going on in their, um, in their overall health spectrum, it may turn out that if the... <clears throat> Uh, distribution of that other condition winds up being seen more frequently in one arm of the trial than the other, then ultimately the difference that we see in the outcome between the two arms might actually be due to that other condition, which is something we're trying hard to avoid here. So we try to keep the situation to as purely confined to the variable we want to examine as possible. So that does mean that we purposefully don't include people which who have conditions that would obviously confuse matters. So perhaps an example would help. If we put someone onto this trial or any trial who had two cancers at the same time, and this does happen, then any outcome we saw might be due to the other cancer. If that's what we see, then we didn't learn anything about the effect on the first cancer. So when we do a trial like this, we say that we only will put people on the trial in whom we can interpret the results. We will include the inclusion criteria only patients that have solely Hodgkin lymphoma and not some other cancer on top of it or alternatively some heart disease on top of it or some other illness on top of it. That way, we can make sure that the observation that we make is confined, the effect is confined to the experimental intervention. Right. So in, in, in the case of the uh, Echelon 1 trial, I mean, you uh, excluded people with HIV, people with hepatitis B, um, and people with hepatitis C. Uh, why was mm -hmm. that important in this particular case? Well, those are serious diseases, HIV infection or various kinds of hepatitis. And they all by themselves could have a clear-cut impact on the likelihood of a person's disease being gotten rid of or their overall survival. And if, uh, in the course of doing the trial, one arm of the trial or the other wound up with more people with that particular condition, then we would be confused as to what was the outcome. But there's another important uh, consideration here, too. When we do a trial like this, we're also learning what's the impact on the patient. How 
much trouble does the treatment cause? How many right. side effects do they have? How much toxicity do they have? Well, if a person already has an underlying disease, perhaps hepatitis, so that their liver doesn't work properly, then they may very well have much more trouble from any of the treatment, the control or the experimental treatment, and we'll then be confused. We will think that the bad thing that happened, the toxicity, we might think it was due to the intervention, but in fact it was due to the underlying condition. So we have a responsibility to produce interpretable results when we do a trial like this. So we necessarily have to avoid including people who have such severe underlying conditions that we could be confused in terms of interpreting the side effects or the toxicity that we see in, occurring in that patient. For that reason, we exclude people that have major organ dysfunction. So if they have something wrong with their heart or something wrong with their liver, then we don't include them because what we see may reflect that other condition and not the intervention. Well, we are out of time right now. Thank you very much uh, for uh, being in our show this today. Well, great. I'm glad that this has been a helpful discussion. This edition of the Oncozine Brief was originally recorded on March 22, 2018. For us here at the Oncozine Brief, we want to thank you, our listeners and underwriters, for your ongoing support. Thanks to your support, our program now has a wider reach with distribution via iHeartRadio in addition to PRX, Public Radio Exchange. And we know that based on this interview, you may have questions. So please submit your questions to our editorial team via email, Facebook, or Twitter. And we will post as many answers as we can on our website, oncuzine.com. That is O-N-C-O-Z-I-N-E dot com. Thank you. Thank you all for listening and tune in for our next episode. I'm Peter Hofland here with Sonia Portillo, and this is the Oncuzine Brief. The Oncozine Brief was produced for Sun Valley Communication by Peter Hofflin, Sonia Portillo, Evan Wynn, David Kaler, and Sean Mayer, and distributed by InPress Media Group. Support for the Oncozine Brief comes from listeners of this station and our commercial underwriters and advertisers. For more information about underwriting and sponsoring options, contact Sean Mayer in California at 949 923 1660, or visit our website at oncozine.com forward slash underwriting. The Oncozine Brief contains health and medicine-related information and is provided for educational and entertainment purposes only. The content is not intended as a substitute for professional medical or health advice and does not replace your doctor's advice. Your doctor is the best person to answer questions about your personal health if you hear something in this program that doesn't agree with what your doctor has told you, ask him or her about it. The Oncocene Brief is in part made possible by generous support from Kite Rocket. Kite Rocket, making brands more valuable. For more information about public relation beyond classic PR support, contact Martin Pirick at Kite Rocket in Phoenix at 602-443-0030 or visit their website at kiterocket.com and by Aqua Therapy Clinics. 
Aqua Therapy Clinics offering an alternative form of pain management and stress relief for everyone, from young athletes to active seniors. For more information about the future in rehabilitation and pain management, from sports injuries, neurological conditions, and musculoskeletal disorders, contact David Grywall at Aqua Therapy Clinics in Gilbert, Arizona, 303-566-3000.